We're in our third message of Paul's sermon from Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch in Pisidia, uh, north of Cyprus, which is that little island in the Mediterranean. And then the area that they're in is what is now known as Turkey. But Paul is giving a sermon recounting Jewish history pointing out how God has been active in the past and in doing so, presenting Christ as their Savior and the Messiah. And Paul took considerable time establishing the objective reality of the resurrection by talking about eyewitness testimony, by relating it to Old Testament prophecy and all the the promises that God gave. And then the result... Of all that work, we find in the verses after, verses 38 and and following. So God has established our acceptance in him through the work of Christ, and that was something that the law could not do. That was something that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament could not do. The law fulfills its purpose in basically declaring us guilty, right? And it's, it's insufficient in removing our guilt of sin. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't have a purpose. It just means that it is insufficient in taking care of our sin. So that brings us to our passage in Acts 13, verses 38 through 45. Let it be known... To you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, ye scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the, of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Father, We again invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We acknowledge that it is only through your Spirit that your Word has been given to us. It's only through your Spirit that we can understand your Word, and it's through your Spirit that we can do it, that we can obey your Word. So we're completely dependent upon you to do a supernatural work in each of us. We humble ourselves before you in dependent faith and ask you to transform our perspectives and our lives through this holy encounter. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the law fulfills its purpose in declaring us guilty, and it's insufficient in removing the guilt. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything 
from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, the way that verse 39 is worded seems to imply that the law could maybe justify a little bit. But the idea is not that some sins could be removed by the law because it is impossible for the law to do so. No one has kept the law in a a perfect manner. And not enough Old Testament sacrifices could be made to cover our sins. Everyone has broken the law. We read this in the New Testament, Galatians 6.13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. And James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The Greek word for freed in verse 39 is actually used 39 times in the New Testament, and 33 of those times it is translated justified. It means to to have someone declare you righteous. It's It's a legal declaration that a person has been acquitted. They have been absolved. It is by justification that a person is made righteous and acceptable to God. So it's it's translated freed in the ESV and means in this context to be freed from our sins. The idea is that through Christ, we experience a freedom of our sins. There is a declaration that we are made free, that we're no longer in bondage, that we have been forgiven of our sins. Now, the law serves a purpose in showing our sin, but it can never serve as the basis of making us acceptable to God unless we keep it perfectly. And since no one but Christ has kept the law perfectly, then the law is powerless to deliver this freedom to us. Listen to Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So by Jesus Christ, we obtain a complete justification. For by him, our our complete atonement has been made for our sin. Romans says this, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So again, just to restate it, acceptance with God is not found in performing the law. It's not acquired through religious performance. It's only found through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have to put this in context of what is going on in Acts 13. 
because Paul's audience are Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles. And this point is where the Jews had incredible difficulty. How could one not born of our race, one not keeping the law, be justified before God? Now, Paul had heard this before. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's actually taking a quote from Habakkuk 1.5 that says, look among the nations, see, wonder and be astounded from doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Habakkuk was struggling with the idea that God was going to use the Babylonians to hold God's people in bondage and deal with them. Why? Well, because in the 7th century BC, the Babylonians had crushed the Assyrian Empire and quickly proceeded to defeat the once powerful Egyptians. So a new world empire was crossing over the globe. And the Babylonians would overtake Judah and carry its inhabitants away into captivity. And Judah was in great moral decline. There was national corruption since the death of Josiah. Under the rule of Jehoiakim, decay, violence, greed, fighting, perverted justice, that was the norm in Judah. And on the eve of this pending destruction of the Babylonians taking over, Habakkuk writes this book wondering, where is God in all of this? How could God use an unrighteous people like the Babylonians to deal with the Jews. Judah got into that position. How? By rejecting God, by rejecting his messengers, his prophets. And so Paul is using that as a parallel to the Jews in the first century. They have rejected God's Messiah in Jesus. And how can they think that this will have no consequence. By their rejection of Christ, they put themselves in the same predicament, and they're inviting God's judgment. Now, I suppose there are many who would think that God's judgment is unfair. However, the objective reality of this, and by the way, God is the one who defines spiritual reality, and God has said in Romans 3.10, that none are righteous, not even one. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a mathematician, but I can figure out what none is, okay? Not a one of us. No man is able to obtain justification through the law or any other religious performance. Now, it's in that state that God offers salvation through Christ. And many people reject that. Now, it seems from God's perspective that he has been more than fair that in the midst of that sinful state, he offers his grace to people. He has operated in grace, even though we're all deserving of judgment. Listen, if there is a burning building 
and we are on the second floor, and someone puts a ladder up to the second floor window. I suppose that there would be some that would criticize the type of ladder that was used at the window. There would be others that might be fearful of stepping out the window and using it as an exit from the second floor. But the fault at that point does not reside in the one who made the rescue attempt, but the ones who refused to take advantage of the rescue. Notice that Paul has conveyed grace from God, but also judgment for those who reject Christ. You might think they would be a little ticked at this. But upon hearing this, many were eager to hear more. And perhaps their their ears had been trained by their teaching in the Old Testament because we know that there were Jews present. Others perhaps had no problem accepting the idea that humans are responsible for their sin and deserving of judgment. Verse 42 says, and they went out. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, there are four groups spoken about here. There's It says, the people, that's most likely those who were in the synagogue with an earshot of Paul. Then there were the Jews, it refers to those that were born Jewish and uh, practiced Judaism. There were devout converts referring to Gentiles who had uh, converted to Judaism. And then there's the whole city, and refers to the religious and secular culture, including government authorities. The point is being made that as Paul was conveying the gospel, there was a wide variety of people who had a great hunger to hear more. I mean, no matter who the person is, when a heart is humbled before God and they see their need, they're hungry for grace. They became like like the deer, the psalmist talks about it as a deer pants for the water. They have such a need, they feel like they're gonna die unless they get that need met, unless they get a drink. And when the synagogue meets again, our passage says almost the whole city turns out to hear more of this news about God's forgiveness available to everyone. So obviously, these people had gone out and were talking to their friends, and word was spreading as this crowd gathered. This included Gentiles, in addition to proselytes to the Jewish religion, and they heard about how they're free from sin if they put their faith in Christ, in the, in the historical reality of the, of the work of Christ on the earth. Again, this is a monumental message given the context of a society where there is a strict division between Jew and Gentile. And many Jews felt that it was inappropriate to make such an offer and not require the law to make converts. There was not only this religious, you know, uh, protectionist attitude, 
But as, as we have noted before, there was also a racial component that made this offer of the gospel especially egregious to many of these Jews. Now, after the meeting ended, everyone, it says, were trying to follow Paul and Barnabas around. I mean, it's kind of like in a Rocky movie where Rocky's training, you got everybody in the streets, you know, following Rocky through the streets. Only here, instead of the, the, the crowd coming together to watch a fight that was to come, they're excited about peace that was made between them and God, and they cannot get enough. And Paul and Barnabas know the hold that Judaism has within the thinking of many of these followers, so it says they urge them to continue in the grace of God. Now, these are mostly people who have already trusted in the grace of God, but the tendency will be to think that they're going to need the law as well. The tendency will be to slip back into a, a type of legalism. And it actually reminds us of a similar situation with the Galatians, who initially trusted in the gospel, but were tempted by trying to keep the law again. Paul wrote in Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, lest we criticize these people too harshly, I want us to remember how easy it is for many Christians today to slip back into kind of a, a fleshly, performance-oriented-based Christianity. It often utilizes legalism by demanding some layer of, of behavior on top of the Bible to be acceptable to God. And Christians have struggled with this kind of perspective since the inception of the church. There's a religious sect in India that hires people to pick up unwanted or dying insects. Uh, they do this to feed and care for them as an act of worship. I mean, in, in a country where people are starving in the streets every night, insects are revered. And worshipers are literally straining to protect insects and leaving people to die. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and their propensity for false righteousness, he said this, what do you who strain at an insect and swallow a camel? What he's saying is, you, you nitpick on things that by proportion are insignificant. You follow after that which is ineffective. You fail to remember the significant things in your life. But all this is within, encased within religion. It was Pascal who said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Now, I can only assume that Pascal was talking about wars or political movements, but great harm is done even today in the name of religion. And yes, in the name of Christianity, and yes, in the name of Bible believing churches. 
those who perpetrate a false righteousness. Paul says it's foolish and you're causing great harm. Now, it seems that we as Christians in our society, we, we, we go to one of two extremes, right? There's a temptation to dismiss God's moral law as irrelevant, and then there's the other extreme to add to his law. Now, our topic today is the extreme of adding to the Bible or creating a false man-made righteousness, so I'm going to harp on that one today. Now, the reason that this is so insidious is because it discounts the person and the work of Christ. I mean, what Paul said in Galatians is, you guys are so foolish, especially in light of the fact that Christ has so plainly and publicly given to you a righteousness. You've seen so plainly what he's done, and yet you turn your back on him. I appreciate what one teacher said about Galatians. He said, no ritual, ceremony, regulation, or any other devised or accomplished by men can pick up where the cross leaves off because the cross never leaves off. The cross is the continuing and eternal payment for all sin, and every sinner who puts his trust in the cross is forever and continually being forgiven. So how do we disregard the person and the work of Christ. We do that by all of a sudden relying on a self-righteousness, which is really a false righteousness. We, we rely on a way to please God when God is really not pleased because we're doing it for self, or maybe we're doing it for display, or we're doing it for a way to show how much better we are than other people. What pleases God is our continual faith in his son who never fails to maintain our salvation. It's in his hands. Now, I want to be quick to note here that when I use the term legalist, that doesn't simply mean somebody who has a different conviction than you or somebody who doesn't do a practice or behavior that you do. And I hear some people making that charge, and I think it's an unfair charge. Someone refraining from an activity that you do does not make that person a legalist. It is how they relate that activity in their relationship with God and how they wield that activity in their relationship with other people that could make them a legalist. Legalism corrupts the work of Christ by inferring that his work was not enough for us to be accepted by God. And it also corrupts our relationship with others by unnecessarily creating this kind of spiritual caste system within the body of Christ. I mean, there is hardly a Christian alive who's not experienced the feeling of not being quite in because they didn't follow some extra biblical code or rules of the particular Christian subculture that they're a part of. That's what I mean by the legalism. And listen, I think the great temptation for any pastor is to proclaim for a congregation what those rules are and how they should be following them. I'm talking about the extra biblical rules. 
This is a form of legalism that Christian leaders perpetrate. And I get the temptation. I mean, I could get up here and make for you all kinds of rules that you're to follow. And there are people who basically say, just tell us what we need to do so we can go on with our lives. There's a reason why I refrain from such a thing. Every Christian has the indwelling Christ in them. Every believer has the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Word of God, or I hope they do. Certainly in this, in our context, they certainly do. And by the way, every Christian has a brain. Now, when we go to God with these issues, trying to figure out what God's will is, he teaches us in a process that that draws us to himself. I mean, we pray about it, we, we read the Bible, we pray more, we ask questions, we get on our knees, we, we seek God, he teaches us some more, we learn, we are, we are molded as we depend upon Christ to, to live his life through us and, and to teach us. That sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is what we want for every believer. Now, if I took that away from you by eliminating that process of you seeking God, what happens to your growth? Sure, we as a church could have more control by spelling this out for everybody, right? We could do that. We could do that. We could get all the Christian soldiers in line, and we could shame you if you get out of line. But is that really the Christian life? I don't think so. Is that that a relationship with Christ? What does that say about us as as a community? I mean, as I read the Bible, it seems that unity happens best when you rub shoulders with people who aren't with you on all these lifestyle issues, right? I mean, you may have people who disagree with you about, you know, politics or movies or schooling or drinking and a host of other cultural issues. And it doesn't mean that you can't have convictions about these things. And the fact is the scriptures do give absolute parameters when it speaks clearly on, on many topics. But when it doesn't, what do we do? We have to apply wisdom. We have to seek God. We have to establish our, our own convictions, and then we have to give grace to one another when maybe others see it differently. I, I, I almost think that this, this propensity to control and, and to lay it all out is really a lack of faith in God to work in people. The lack of faith in the Holy Spirit to do his work. See, I just happen to think God is big enough and powerful enough to work out your salvation to where we don't have to control the outcomes of every Christian. Is God big enough to teach us and to maintain unity in our diversity and to help us not get sidetracked? I think so. Do you think so? I think so. 
Maybe we just don't believe that God is big enough to do that. I just happen to think that the Holy Spirit can work in each of us, use the Word of God, and help us to apply godly wisdom to our situation. But let's not fool ourselves. That doesn't mean we're all going to agree. I mean, in, in 1 Corinthians, you had this issue of meat sacrificed to idols, and Christians disagreed about it. And Paul was basically saying, listen, you know, there's not a chapter and verse that says, thou shalt not eat this meat. What, what the deal was is that you had meat that was offered to idols, and the leftover meat was sold in the streets. Some Christians thought you shouldn't touch that meat. Others said, it's just meat. What's the big deal? And in fact, Paul basically said the same thing. You're not going to defile yourself by what you eat, but there are many who have a very sensitive conscience about these things because of their past. So, you know, don't run roughshod over them, honor them. And by the way, don't eat that meat in front of them and stick it in their face. Honor them. Privately, go ahead and have your steak. Won't be that big of a deal between you and God. Is God big enough, though, to work in us and to create this unity? I think so. Annie Dillard, in her work, Teaching a Stone to Talk, says this, and I like this because I think it just lets us know if our faith is enough to believe that the Holy Spirit can work in each person and, and work out this salvation, I, I think we'll be okay. But listen to this. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? <laughs> the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. End quote. Let us step aside from our own self-works and allow his grace to emanate, his power to explode, his works to be made manifest as we work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Because ultimately, we are accountable to God and how we live this life. Let's pray.